This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 82, for broadcast on the 17th of October, 2018. Coming up on Space Time... A Soyuz mission abort minutes after liftoff poses the greatest threat to astronauts since the Columbia disaster. A new weapon in the battle against the growing problem of space junk. And the Hubble Space Telescope switches to safe mode following a gyroscope failure. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. In what's been the most dangerous manned space flight since the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster, the Soyuz MS-10 spacecraft has suffered a mission abort just two minutes after launch from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan. The spacecraft was carrying two Expedition 58 crew members to the International Space Station when their Soyuz FG rocket's core stage suffered a sudden engine failure. Ground umbilical to the third stage has been disconnected and in just a moment the second umbilical tower will separate. Power on board. There's the second tower. Command for ignition, oxygen. Launch command has been issued. Seven, six, five, four, three, Two, one. Engine turbo pump at speed. Engine at maximum thrust. Lift off. And there is lift off of the Soyuz MS-10 to the International Space Station, carrying Nick Haig and Alexei Ovchinin to the orbital complex. Nick Haig's first time to uh, launch to space, and Alexei Ovchinin's second. Hearing good first stage performance for the Soyuz, delivering 930,000 pounds of thrust from its four boosters and single engine. In the first stage. The Soyuz measures 68 feet in length and 24 feet in diameter. It's burning liquid fuel for the first two minutes and six seconds of flight. The pressure in the chamber is nominal. One copy, uh, everything is well on board. They're feeling well. Thank you. Copy. Everything proceeding as uh, intended for today's flight. Now just a little over a minute into it. The velocity of the Soyuz is about 1,100 miles per hour. One copy, everything is well on board. The crew is feeling well. Copy. Everything looking good. Proceeding nominally. Inaudible. And we have the escape tower for the Soyuz now jettisoned. Everything continuing nominally. Four strap-on boosters have been jettisoned, and they've completed their job, dropped away at an altitude of 28 statute miles. Soyuz traveling about 3,350 miles an hour. Emergency booster, 2 minutes 45 seconds, the uh, emergency, the failure of the booster. Failure of the booster, separation. Enable power. 190 seconds into the flight, so he's traveling about 4,700 miles per hour. Don't be in a hurry. Burlaki, copy. We are in uh, weightlessness, you know, according to our sensations. Stand by. Burlaki, do you have F1 illuminated? Failure. 11.42, 17 is the time of the failure. F1 on SP is illuminated. Copy. The shroud is separated. The crew is feeling well. Everything is well. On board, we have roof, uh, 
in our hands and the power is on. Copy. So what are the recommendations of the ground? What about the separation? Did the separation go through? Yes, it did. Did you activate the root power? Yes, the root power is on. ON. Ballistic uh, descent command is sent from root controller. Copy. Below the 6.7. Copy. We feeling rotation. The geload is going down. 18.46.20. Geload is 2.72 and going down. Copy, Burlakim. Hearing there that uh, there has been uh, an issue with the booster and we're standing by for information as we continue to get it from the Russian flight control team, but everything seems to be fine with the crew. We had good calm with them and they are okay. Team here in Mission Control is working with their counterparts in Russia, getting more information on the uh, issue with the booster that uh, has changed today's launch plan, uh, getting more information, which we'll provide as, as soon as we have a little bit more. And uh, we can confirm now that the crew has started to go into the ballistic descent mode. They'll be going in on a sharp landing today, and we're continuing to get more information from our counterparts at the Roscosmos Space Agency. The incident appears to have happened as the four liquid-fueled strap-on boosters known by Russians as the first stage, separated from the launch vehicle's core, or second stage as the Russians call it, one minute and 58 seconds after liftoff. This booster separation, which takes place at an altitude of 45 kilometers or 150,000 feet, involves a spectacular maneuver known as a Korolev cross, in which all four boosters simultaneously flip outwards and away from the core stage. Early investigations suggest that the D-booster failed to separate cleanly, either slamming into the core stage during the Korolev cross maneuver and damaging the side of the fuselage, or remaining partially attached and possibly tearing out part of the fuselage. NASA images appear to show only three of the boosters separating cleanly. With the escape tower already jettisoned, it was left to the Soyuz capsule's thrusters to drag the re-entry module away from the stack bringing it back to Earth in a high-G ballistic trajectory, touching down about 400 kilometres to the northeast, downrange of Baikonur. The MS-10 emergency landing was the first in-flight abort during a Soyuz crew launch since 1975. Another Russian crew was forced to use an abort system to escape a rocket explosion on the launch pad at Baikonur eight years later. Based on the Soviet Union-era R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile, the Soyuz launch vehicle is one of the great workhorses for the Russian Space Agency. It's also used by the European Space Agency for launches from Kourou. And although there have been many mishaps since the R-7 was first used to launch Sputnik back in 1957, the launch vehicle does have an incredible safety record. Mind you, there have been several Progress cargo ship failures using the Soyuz launch vehicle in recent years. The Russian Federal Space Agency at Roscosmos has suspended all manned space flights until further notice as they conduct their investigation into the incident. That's likely to affect the Expedition 59 launch aboard the Soyuz MS-11 spacecraft, which for the moment at least is slated for December 20. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine says the agency expects the next crew launch to take place on schedule. One idea being discussed involves Roscosmos fast-tracking the Soyuz MS-11 mission but using it as an unmanned test flight to the space station in order to ensure there's no repeat of the MS-10 problem. As for the Expedition 57 crew currently on station, they were slated to return to Earth aboard their Soyuz MS-09 capsule on December the 13th. 
That's the same Soyuz MS-09 spacecraft, which began venting atmosphere into space a few weeks ago after a hole opened out in the Soyuz capsule's orbital module. That hole is believed to have been caused by a drill accidentally puncturing the hull of the spacecraft during its manufacture at the Inertia plant and then quickly patched up before anyone noticed. A separate Roscosmos investigation into how that hole was made and how the spacecraft passed quality control is also underway. Inertia insists the hole was not made at its plant and was most likely caused sometime during the 180 days between leaving the plant and its launch from Baikonur. As the hole, which has now been patched up, was in the orbital module, not the descent module, it wouldn't have affected the crew's ability to return to Earth. Still, it's now possible the Expedition 57 crew will remain on station until early next year. The alternative is that they return to Earth on time, leaving the space station, which by the way celebrates its 20th year in orbit in November, flying without a crew for several months. That wouldn't be a problem as the space station is designed for automated operation. If the Soyuz MS-11 does undertake an unmanned test flight to the space station, it's also possible the Expedition 57 crew will use that capsule for their return to Earth if their stay on station exceeds the 200-day use-by date for their Soyuz MS-09 capsule. Also delayed will be this month's Soyuz Progress cargo ship flight to the space station. That was slated to launch from Baikonur on October 31st. The incident highlights the problem currently faced for manned spaceflight with NASA having mothballed its space shuttle fleet early before the shuttle's replacements became operational. By the way, that's expected to occur sometime in the next year. At this stage, SpaceX expects to conduct its first manned space flight of its new Dragon crew capsule to the space station in June, with Boeing expected to fly their own manned test flight to the orbiting outpost aboard their CST-100 Starliner in August. Astronomers have identified one of the most ancient stars in the Milky Way galaxy. A spectroscopic analysis shows the star, catalogued as pristine 2218781 plus 97844, is extremely metal poor. Astronomers describe all elements other than hydrogen and helium as metals, and this star has unusually low metallicity, suggesting that it may have been produced directly out of the supernova ashes of the very first stars in the universe. The first stars in the universe are thought to have been produced around 200 million years after the Big Bang. They formed directly out of the primordial elements produced in the Big Bang, primarily hydrogen and helium, together with trace amounts of lithium and beryllium. That unique chemical composition means the first stars, known as Population 3 stars by astronomers, were extremely luminous and massive blue stars, many tens to hundreds of times the mass of our Sun. During their lives, stars shine by fusing hydrogen in their core into helium. When so doing, they're said to be on the main sequence. Eventually, they run out of core hydrogen and instead begin fusing helium into carbon and oxygen. Now, for relatively low-mass stars, like our Sun for example, that's where the process ends. The star, which by now has expanded and cooled to become a red giant, loses its outer gaseous envelope, which detaches and floats away as a planetary nebula, while its white-hot stellar core is left behind as a white dwarf to slowly cool over the eons of time. However, high-mass stars are massive enough to fuse their carbon and oxygen into progressively heavier and heavier elements until eventually they reach nickel and iron. But no matter how massive a star is, once it's begun producing iron in its core, the nuclear fusion process quickly breaks down. 
and the balancing act of hydrostatic equilibrium between the outwards push of energy from nuclear fusion and the inwards push of gravity ceases and gravity wins. This causes the star to collapse in on itself in what's called a core collapse supernova, an explosion so bright it can briefly outshine an entire galaxy. Usually a core collapse supernova will result in the production of an extremely dense compact object called a neutron star. Although if the progenitor star has enough mass, it could well collapse beyond the neutron star stage, instead forming a stellar mass black hole. An object so dense with so much gravitational pull that nothing, not even light, can escape. The extreme energy of a supernova produces most of the remaining elements on the periodic table after iron, leaving only some of the most massive elements on the periodic table being forged through even more powerful events known as hypernovas, generated by neutron star mergers. As a general rule, the bigger and hotter a star is, the faster it burns through its fuel supplies, and consequently, the shorter its life. For a small yellow dwarf star like our Sun, it'll happily continue shining through the fusing of hydrogen in its core for around 12 billion years. And less massive and consequently cooler red dwarf stars can continue living for trillions of years. In fact, astronomers are pretty sure that throughout the history of the universe, no red dwarf star has ever run out of fuel and died. However, at the other end of the scale, much more massive and luminous blue stars will burn through their fuel reserves relatively quickly living for just a few million years before ending their lives as core collapse supernovae. These stars are considered the James Deans of the astronomical world, living fast and dying young. And the very first stars to shine in the universe, those population three stars we mentioned, were all short-lived massive blue stars. When they went supernova, they blasted their remains out into the surrounding interstellar media, providing the material which helped seed the second generation of stars, the so-called Population II stars. But these Population II stars still have very low levels of metallicity compared to stars that are younger, like our Sun at 4.6 billion years, which are known as Population I stars. And that's where the discovery of this pristine star comes in. A report in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society suggests the discovery of this star provides astronomers with a messenger from the distant past, opening a new window into the evolution of the first stars after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. You see, when studying the early universe, astronomers can look deep into the universe, observing stars and galaxies billions of light years away, and therefore looking far back in time to a point when the cosmos was still relatively young but those stars and galaxies are all a long, long way away. So another way is to examine the oldest surviving stars closer to home, in our own galaxy, for example, and then use them to get a glimpse of what conditions were like in the early universe. And that's where the pristine survey comes in. The study led by Dr. Elf Starkenberg from the Leipzig Institute of Astrophysics in Potsdam and Nicholas Martin from the University of Strasbourg is searching the heavens for ancient stars. The authors used a special colour filter on the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope to search for stars with relatively pristine atmospheres. These observations were then followed up using advanced spectrographs on the William Herschel and Isaac Newton telescopes in order to confirm the extremely low metallicity of their target stars. This technique has allowed the authors to determine that pristine 221-8781 plus 978-44 is one of the most metal poor stars known. In fact, the star contains less than one ten-thousandth the metallicity of the Sun. 
And whereas most metal-poor stars that exhibit such low levels of elements like iron and calcium also show a significant enhancement in carbon, this star does not. Starkenberg says that makes this only the second star of its kind ever discovered. He says the existence of a class of metal-poor stars with low carbon abundances suggests there must have been several different formation channels in the early universe through which long-lived low-mass stars were formed. By comparison, the Sun spectra shows that its composition contains about 2% metallicity, a clear indication of its more recent origins as part of a later generation of stars, made up of recycled material from more ancient stars that lived long before it and have since died out. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Researchers have found a new way of dealing with the growing problem of space junk by developing a new type of hunter-killer satellite powered by superheated gas. Space debris orbiting the Earth has become a major problem in recent decades, posing a serious navigation hazard in orbit. The United States Strategic Space Command is currently tracking around 18,000 artificial objects in orbit above the Earth. Of these, only around 1,500 are operational satellites. The rest are disused spacecraft and spent rocket stages. But of course, these are only objects large enough to be tracked from the ground. Current estimates suggest there are well over 700,000 bits of space junk, a centimetre or more in size, and a staggering 170 million bits of space debris, a centimetre or smaller, currently orbiting the Earth. And remember, all these objects are travelling at at least 28,000 kilometres an hour or faster. One of the big fears are cascade events, where bits of space junk slam into satellites or other space junk, creating more debris, which then slams into other bits of space junk or spacecraft, creating even more debris, and so on and so forth. Now, a new study has found that satellites could be sent up to seek out and move space debris using nothing more than beams of hot plasma or ionised gas. Now, this would allow the satellite to push space junk down into a lower orbit, where it would eventually decay and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Professor Rod Boswell from the Australian National University says tests show how plasma can be pushed out one end of a satellite to thrust it towards space junk and then push it out the other end to send the space junk in the right direction. Boswell says if you can throw the gas out as a plasma, you get to throw it out really quickly, making much better use of the fuel. Space junk will naturally undergo orbital decay within around two years if it's below 500 kilometres of the Earth's surface. That's because the atmosphere is still dense enough at those altitudes to cause some degree of drag, which causes objects to gradually get slower and therefore lower. However, above 500 kilometres, it presents a much tougher problem, taking far longer to lose altitude. And all this is really difficult to test in the 1G environment of planet Earth. But a study published in the journal Scientific Reports shows how researchers have now developed an experiment to simulate the proposal. The next challenge will be working out how to guide the hunter-killer satellite towards its space debris target once it's up there in orbit. Boswell says while you can calculate the orbital trajectory of a potential target to within a certain number of kilometres, the hunter-killer satellite would still need to zero in on the target using its own radar. This so-called Shepard system would have its main plasma engine thrusting it towards the target as well as small thrusters to direct it properly during more delicate manoeuvres. Boswell and colleagues at the ANU are now trying to make the system both more economical and much more effective, including building something small enough to be carried into orbit. 
He says researchers are gradually developing mission profiles to get these things into space where they can be tested using an operational hunter-killer satellite and target. Commonly, if you have a thruster, you push material out of one end of it and your thruster moves in the other direction. What we've done by using a rather clever plasma technique is to produce a thruster with two ends. It squirts out the front and it squirts out the back and we can control that. So we can do a few things with this. We can move the thruster forward or we can move the thruster back or we can bring the satellite containing the thruster close to a piece of space debris and have both thrusters working at the same time so the thruster stays in the same place but one of the thruster blows on the debris and moves it away. So if you have just a thruster blowing on the debris and moves it away, the thruster's going to move away too because of Newton for all actions as an equal and opposite reaction. So we have a thrust with an outlet in the front and an outlet in the back and it can push space debris around in that manner. That's the basis of what we've done. And I guess the idea is making sure there's enough fuel on that thruster to keep it working for a long, long time. Otherwise, it gets really expensive in, if you've got to keep putting things up there. <laughs> it's pretty expensive to put things up there anyway. <laughs> it's more expensive to get them down. Yes, so that's why we use uh, electric propulsion, because normal propulsion throws things out at a certain speed. But with electric propulsion, you use charged particles in a plasma and throw it out much faster. So if you can throw it out 10 times faster, you only need to throw out 10 times less. With these ion propulsion systems in the past, we've seen very slow acceleration in those for satellites. In other words, they take much longer to take effect than a, a normal chemical engine thruster. Is, is, this, is this still going to be a problem with this, this type of proposal? If you can keep the acceleration going slowly but for a longer time, you can have a lot more control and power than just thrusting off suddenly. You've talked about both moving them up into higher orbits and also moving them down into to lower ones. I, I take it moving down is really the idea. You've you got to get them below 500 k's so that the Earth's atmosphere will do the rest through atmospheric drag. That's very true. Uh, that would be the primary thing for something around about five, 600 kilometres. If you're at 36,000 kilometres, which is where some of these very large telecommunication yeah. satellites are, you can't do that. You have to push them up and they go into a graveyard orbit and we're working on that as well. Uh, luckily, right now, there's an agreement that uh, geostationary satellites should retain enough fuel to move into this graveyard orbit. Oh, well, it's um, regarded as very naughty if you don't do that, and people get very cross because you only hire the uh, slot for five or ten years, and then you have to get out of it and let the new satellite come in. I mean, they're sold. The slots, which are two degrees wide, I think, so there's 180 of them, are given to countries around the world to own, and they are then on sold to telecommunications companies. So the space is sold for a certain time. Where are you at now in the development of this project? We've done a laboratory test so that we know that uh, we actually produce thrust forward and backward with one thruster, and we're now looking around to make a small satellite where we can test it, which is what I'm doing at the moment. In fact, I'm trying to get a startup going to get some funding in to try and test this, but that's in the future. The test spacecraft, is that going to be like a, a six-unit CubeSat or something, or, or something bigger or something I think smaller? The CubeSat propulsion systems that we're developing now, which will be much smaller than the one we used to test in Japan with Kazunori Takahashi, that was quite large. That would have been about a 12-unit CubeSat. His 
laboratory demo, we're trying to get into about a half a U per thruster. So that'll be two thrusters in about one U. And we hope to be able to have some sort of test platform on that in halfway through next year or And that's a ground-based test platform or something you actually put into orbit? No, no, no we're aiming for a, a CubeSat and a launch. Okay. It's fiendishly difficult because people sell you lots of stuff nowadays and they say it's fine for space, but you only know that when you get out there. So uh, you have to actually do a lot of the testing and development yourself, which is why we're collaborating with a lot of people in New Zealand, which is quite exciting, Rocket Labs and uh, New Zealand Space Agency and also Stanford and Japan. You need to take talents and methods of developing things from lots of different people in different places to get a success. What size targets are you aiming at? I guess that depends on the size of the hunter-killer satellite you develop, doesn't it? uh, That's precisely the case, yes. So anything, you'd have to see it with a radar, right? So it's going to have to be in half a metre or so I would say and greater. Smaller than that is going to be extremely difficult to see because small objects will just refract or deflect the radar probing waves. All of these things are quite difficult when you come back to it. It's all very good to have a headline but when you get down to the nitty gritty you need some good engineering to make it succeed. One of the big concerns isn't just the decent sized pieces of space junk out there that can be tracked but the the small bits of debris those that are a result of cascades in space where one piece of space junk slammed into another piece of space junk We've seen that with Iridium satellites and Russian spacecraft. And, of course, the Chinese did a really great job with a disused meteorological satellite they decided to blow up in space. How do you get rid of stuff like that? I think if you're aiming for something and you have large amounts of power, then you can you might be able to get close-ish to hit it. Trying to do it when you're in orbit to damn sight different. And it's actually really unusual for that to happen. And I'd say anything... Anything smaller than uh, a pack of cards or something like that is uh, the best solution is prayer. And wait for it to go down by itself over tens and whatever years, depending how high it is. We've just seen a, a European test of a new space debris recovery system, the first of a series of tests. They're using a net initially. They're also going to be using a harpoon later on and uh, and finally they'll grab a piece of space junk and drag it into the Earth's atmosphere with them, with this spacecraft they're using. Yep. That's one proposal. Here in Australia, a place in Queanbeyan have been looking at using laser beams, not just to track space junk, but also to heat them up and slow them down a little bit as well. That's another alternative. How does your ID compare to those? If you're going to lasso it, then that's a suicide mission. You get rid of the thing you sent up to get get rid of the piece of space junk. You then have to write that off on how much it's going to cost you and how much it's going to save you. All of these things are sort of actuary. You have to work out how much people are going to pay you to be able to do that. I prefer to have one stick up there for a bit longer and make small changes that can be made but stay up there. That's Professor Rod Boswell from the Australian National University. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. NASA's Earth-orbiting Hubble Space Telescope has switched to a default safe mode after one of its gyros suddenly failed. Hubble uses its gyroscopes to both aim and steady the telescope in its 500-kilometre-high orbital perch. The gyros measure the speed at which the spacecraft's turning to lock on to new targets. To meet the stringent targeting requirements necessary to study far-off astronomical objects, Hubble's gyros are extremely accurate. Safe mode places the telescope into a stable configuration that suspends science observations and orients the spacecraft's solar panels towards the sun to ensure Hubble's power requirements are met. The spacecraft will then remain in this configuration until mission managers on the ground will correct or compensate for the issue. 
NASA says the spacecraft and its instruments are all still fully functional. Built with multiple redundancies, Hubble had six new gyroscopes installed during the fourth Space Shuttle servicing mission in 2009. The Space Telescope usually uses three gyros at a time for maximum efficiency, but it can continue to make scientific observations using just one. The gyroscope that failed had been exhibiting end-of-life behaviour for about a year now, and so its failure wasn't unexpected. Two other gyros of the same type had already failed. The remaining three gyros available for use are technically more enhanced and therefore expected to have significantly longer operational lives. Two of those enhanced gyros are currently running. But when mission managers powered up the third enhanced gyro, which had been held in reserve, an analysis of the spacecraft's telemetry indicated it wasn't performing at the level required for operations, instead reporting rotational rates that are orders of magnitude higher than what they actually are. Consequently, the Hubble remains in safe mode. Mission managers at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland are now analyzing the issue and carrying out tests to determine what options are available to recover the gyro to operational performance. NASA says Hubble science operations have been suspended while engineers investigate the anomaly. Over the past week, tests on the condition of the backup gyro shows that it seems to be properly tracking Hubble's movements, but the rates reported are considerably higher than the true rates. It's as if the speedometer on your car is showing that you're travelling 100 kilometres an hour faster than your actual speed. When Hubble's turning across the sky from one target to the next, the gyro is put into a coarser mode. Now, in this high mode, it's possible to subtract out the consistent large offset to get an accurate reading. However, after the large turns are over, the telescope attempts to lock onto its new target and then it needs to remain very still. For this activity, the gyros need to go into a precision or low mode in order to measure very small movements. And the extremely high rates currently being reported exceed the upper limit of the gyro in this low mode and that prevents the gyro from accurately reporting the spacecraft's small movements. An anomaly review board, including experts from the Hubble team and industry familiar with the design and performance of this type of gyro, is now being formed to investigate the issue and develop a recovery plan. If the outcome of this investigation results in the recovery of the malfunctioning gyro, Hubble will resume science operations in its standard three-gyro configuration. However, if the outcome indicates the gyro is not usable, Hubble will resume science operations in an already defined reduced gyro mode which uses only a single gyroscope. While the reduced gyro mode offers less sky coverage at any particular time, there's relatively limited impact on the overall science capabilities of the telescope, and so it should continue operating well into the 2020s, enabling it to work alongside its ultimate replacement, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is now expected to fly in 2021. Originally designed to observe the universe from orbit for 15 years, Hubble has already been operating for more than 28 years and is fully expected to continue operating for at least double its original design life. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has found that young adults classified as obese can expect to lose up to 10 years in overall life expectancy. Researchers found that some 36.3 million years of life will be lost over the lifetime of today's Australian adult population as a direct result of being overweight or obese, with men standing to lose an average of 27% more years of life than women. You can read the findings in full in the Journal of Obesity. 
A new study warns that having too much vitamin A may decrease bone thickness, resulting in weak and fracture-prone bones. The findings, reported in the Journal of Endocrinology, show that taking vitamin A at levels equivalent to between 4.5 and 13 times that of human recommended daily allowance cause significant weakening of bones. Researchers are warning that people should be cautious about over-supplementing vitamin A in their diets. A new study warns that global sea levels could rise by more than 15 metres by 2300 due to global warming caused by the ongoing use of fossil fuels. The findings reported in the Annual Review of Environment and Resources also found that at current rates, average sea levels should rise by around 2 metres by the end of the century. In the past 18 years, average global sea levels have risen by about 7 centimetres. Even under moderate emissions, central estimates of global average sea levels from different analyses range from 42 to more than 85 centimetres by 2100, by 85 centimetres to over 1.6 metres by 2150, and by 1.8 metres to almost 4.3 metres by 2300. With 11% of the world's 7.6 billion people now living in areas less than 10 metres above sea level, rising seas pose a very real major risk to coastal populations, to economies, to infrastructure and to ecosystems around the world. Archaeologists have unveiled a 2,000-year-old limestone column drum containing the earliest written Hebrew inscription of the word Jerusalem. The ancient Herodian period artefact was discovered at an archaeological dig site near the International Convention Center in Jerusalem. The words Hanania, son of Dudolus, from Jerusalem, were etched in the column, which was part of a building that stood in a Jewish potter's village near the entrance to Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem had previously been seen on silver coins dating far before the time of this column, but they were always written in Aramaic. Archaeologists say Dudolus was not Hanania's real father, but more likely simply a sign of homage to the mythical Greek artist Dudolius, indicating how the Jewish people of the time were influenced by Greek culture under Alexander the Great. The excavation site where the column was unearthed was the largest ancient pottery production site in the region during the age of the Second Temple and specialised in the manufacture of cooking vessels. With the world's media focused on the fate of missing Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who vanished after walking into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, questions remain about how Turkey knew about the reporter's fate so quickly, in such detail and with so much certainty. Khashoggi was a former member of the Muslim Brotherhood, a former media advisor to the Saudi government and rumoured to have also have been a former Saudi intelligence officer. He often met with al-Qaeda terrorist leader Osama bin Laden and had detailed knowledge of the Saudi royal family's intimate dealings with al-Qaeda in the lead-up to the September 11 terrorist attacks. It was only much later that Khashoggi became a strong critic of the Saudi regime. Khashoggi was at the consulate to obtain papers allowing him to marry his Turkish fiancée. She was outside and raised the alarm when he failed to emerge after more than five hours. Turkey, which itself has an appalling record for detaining and jailing journalists, claims audio files which downloaded from Khashoggi's Apple III watch onto his iPhone, which his fiancée was holding for him, recorded everything, including his bashing, murder and the dismemberment of his body. But while all that may well have been Khashoggi's ultimate fate, is that really how the Turks found out? Anyone who's even a little bit tech-savvy can smell something questionable about that story. 
To find out more, we're joined by Alex Saharov-Royd from IT Wire. It depends on certain assumptions being made that may or may not be technically possible. And one of those things is that the watch that he's reported to have had is the Apple Watch Series 3, and it had the red dot, so it was the cellular version. But Apple themselves have said that the cellular connectivity is not switched on in Turkey. So the only way that it would have been able to communicate with the outside world and upload anything at all to iCloud is whether or not it was in range of one of the Apple iPhones, and apparently there were two that Shoggy's fiance had outside the embassy. And, and that's a fair way away if it's not like it's within a few metres. What's the range of something like that? Well, it's meant to be about 30 feet or 10 metres. I mean, it's a sort of the standard Bluetooth yeah. kind of range. And so anyone who's ever had an Apple Watch themselves that has walked too far away in their home or gone downstairs and seen that their watch has switched on its cellular capability, so you're actually receiving a phone call, well, you, you know that the range is not that long because uh, most of the time your watch and phone are pretty close to each other. So it would seem implausible that the watch was in range of the phone to be able to send the details. It is possible that uh, the watch was connected to the embassy's Wi-Fi, but Khashoggi would have had to have been there in the past and, and you know, set it up for it to do that. And again, that seems unlikely. Also, we were told that they were able to use his fingerprint to unlock the watch. Well, the watch doesn't have a fingerprint capability. It doesn't have the face ID capability. You have to type in a passcode and that sort of switched on, set up. And you know, he would have also have had to push stop on a particular app to stop the recording so it could then be sent Download over to... to yeah. yeah. Now, it is possible that if... You know, the journalist was uh, murdered and ferried out the front of the embassy, not far from the fiancé, and the watch was still on, that maybe it connect phone, but it had to have transferred pretty damn quickly. Is it all plausible, or is it more likely that the Turks are bugging the embassy? Well, I mean, given the technical difficulties in allowing the watch to be connecting to the phone, it's more likely that the embassy is being bugged. The, often when a new ambassador comes along in our local school, will give a present, or it could be any number of items that are sourced locally that has been organised for there to be bugging devices place into them and that is the more likely the more plausible reason why and the Apple Watch is simply being used as, as a plausible excuse or deniability for there to not be any bugging devices in the embassy but given the um, fractious nature of uh, diplomacy it's probably something being bugged and that report by Alex Saharov-Royd from ITWire you're listening to Space Time I'm Stuart Gary and that's the show for now you can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 